Greyhound to trap one. Is that you, Yates? Where are you? Hello and welcome to the Trap One Podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Denise. And I'm Lawrence. Thank you very much for joining me. So we've been listening to Doctor Who, The Planet of Dust and Other Stories, a thrilling selection of weird and wonderful short stories from the pages of the Doctor Who annuals through the years. Uh, the first story features the first Doctor. It's called Justice of the Glacians from the 1967 annual. And this one is brought vividly to life by John Coleshaw. Uh, Doctor Who unexpectedly finds himself on an ice planet after trying to pilot the TARDIS to the G-Star. Um, I've heard that some men do find it difficult to find the G-Star. So <laughs> he's got himself lost um, and he arrives on this uh, this very icy planet. Um, as you'd imagine, when it, they're called the Glacians. It's sort of the Terranation school of, of naming, isn't it? Um, there's a pretty unsubtle subtext in this story that hasn't aged particularly well, I feel. Um, he arrives on the, the planet Brull, which has been ruled by the apparently benevolent colonial occupying race, um, who've now been overthrown by the indigenous Glacians. Um, so Doctor Who teams up with a quizling called Graham to, uh, to overthrow this dangerous experiment in self-rule. In a not unproblematic way, reinstalls the imperialist rulers, because they know what they're doing. And everybody would be better off uh, with them in charge. Living in quite a cold country, I was um, (laughs) quite taken by some of the descriptions. Um, I I like the idea of the zero boots that the doctor developed. Um, Combination of snowshoes, crampons and skis. I'm not really sure how that would work in practice, but (laughs) I think they would be pretty useful. Um, He's quite active for an old bloke in this one, and uh, the story makes reference to his incredible strengths. Um, I hadn't really picked up on the subtext. I mean, they were intelligent beings ruling some bears or some bear-like creatures. But, uh, but yeah, you're right. Um, self-rule, you know, even if this person in charge is a bit of an idiot, as they seem to be, Um <laughs> It was a story from the Doctor from a Doctor Who annual. What can I tell you? <laughs> I, I enjoyed the reading. Um, I think last time I joined you for one of these annual story ones, there was another John Colshaw reading, and he was doing the Fourth Doctor. And I recall not enjoying it too much because he sort of slipped into his default Tom Baker. Um, but I did actually like his reading and his his sort of vocal things for William Hartnell. Um, he seemed to get the intonations right. I felt that it was quite well written. Um, a lot more of a story than I think the other ones in this. I think as the annuals progress, they become shorter and much more sort of vignette-like. Um, something I'll definitely say more about when it comes to Thief of Time. And mm-hmm. um, this, this one felt like you could be reading quite a detailed synopsis for a story that was being pitched. And I, it put me in mind a lot of the, um, the old First Doctor comic strips um, where he's traveling with his grandchildren. It, it felt like it was much more of that era and as I recall in those stories, the Doctor is far more physical. It's like we're seeing him at an earlier point in his 
regeneration. So he isn't, although he does get described as having the silver hair, um, you can imagine that he's maybe prematurely greyed and that he's actually something somewhat in his prime. So the physical things don't didn't jar so much uh, with me. I, like Denise, had not really picked up on the colonial way of, of reading it. The big difference I noticed was that the aliens who had come to the planet were benevolent because almost uniformly they tend to have, to have oppressive and devious intentions just a few years later. Um, and very often it's sort of humans as a much more benevolent sort of view. And 67, so you, it's quite a, a challenging view to have in the period where what's going on in the real world is so many colonial nations were achieving independence and throwing off British rule. Um, so there is a, that is an interesting way to look at it. I liked it, and I did like the snowshoes as well. I, I was picturing something a bit like Nordic uh, cross-country skiers with the um, the sort of the fabric underneath, so that you can actually go up slopes on them because it, it they the crampon sort of bits pop out. Bit um, mm. of a time scale mm. issue in the story. Uh, I found because they, when they get sent to the soldiers get sent to rebuild the snow bridge. They said, oh, we can't do it in three days. And yet they seem to have done it in about 30 minutes when the Toxer <laughs> and uh, the rest of the people get there. Um, but yeah, overall, I thought it was a good story. I, there were two things that were driving me a bit nutty, and it's a, it's a familiar thing, I think, with the writing from that era. So the novelizations, the David Whitaker novelization particularly, and annual stories like that is referring to TARDIS, the TARDIS as TARDIS, and calling the Doctor Doctor Who. Yeah. And the first two stories in that are both a bit guilty of that, but it's, that's a small quibble. I got over that quite quickly. Um, I, I liked it. I thought it was a good, strong start to the, uh, to the selection for this annual. The Peter Cushing movies do that as well, don't they? It's, it's Doctor Who and, and TARDIS. Uh, it's, yes. it's sort of reminded me of that a little bit. Um, yeah, the other thing that I thought the where it was um, sort of a bit of an analogy of uh, the, the British Empire breaking up. There's this idea that uh, the I can't remember. I haven't made note of this. What the ruling um, or the banished rulers were called, but they they had these thought cubes, which they were sort of equivalent of books. So it was like uh, you know the idea that they had come and they were this sort of civilizing influence that had. Um, that had come along because they brought these thought cubes and, and, and settees. <laughs> um, yes, they were called the Thilgors. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, uh, I like that the Doctor dons the atmospheric density jacket from the web planet. Uh, that was a nice uh, sort of tie-in to the, to the TV stories. Mm -hmm. um, and another thing I like about these stories is the way they sort of reflect, uh, you know, what people knew about Doctor Who at the time. Um, so in this one, they say you can't remember where he's come from because he's just been traveling for so long, um, which, you know, it's obviously before there's Time Lords or even really the suggestion that he's, I don't think it's, it's fully confirmed he's an alien, really, is it, um, you know, to begin with? It's the 67 annual, isn't it? So, I mean, on the television, he'd have only just changed into Patrick Troughton. So probably mm. while this was being written, that's something that the writer wasn't aware of. Yeah. 
Yeah, and also, of course, I mean, um, we hadn't seen him travel without companions, so this must be, he must have come back to Gallifrey to pick up Susan at some point, so. Yes, it's, it's, um, it's a chronologist nightmare for trying to, trying to place <laughs> this in where it fits. While I was listening to it, I did have a little thought about the, the, the language of it, and it's something that crops up again in the um, one of the fourth Doctor stories that we'll talk about. The, the, the TARDIS's auto-translation. I did think, it got me thinking a little bit about how that sort of would work. Are they really called Galatians, or is that the TARDIS creating a word for them? Sort of, we, um, yeah, because when later on in the story in the, um, the Doctor of Romana, when they, and I'm sure you maybe have something to say this, uh, to me, when we get around to talking about Midsummer Night's Nightmare, um, the Norwegian should surely should just be translated in, into English. Um, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean. So when it's a completely different world and culture, um, there was something in the story about the way that the the, the Galatians spoke, which I found a bit interesting. Um, I don't know if that was, I doubt it was the intention in the story, but it was something that I just picked up on as I listened to it. Yeah, so if they were, if they're in their own language, it was like the people of the glacier, um, it was their tribe or something, that would make sense as uh, the Tardis translating it and making sense of them as a as a race rather yeah. than just a description of, uh, of where they are, yeah. Yes, well, there were some pretty cool names. I mean, wasn't the scientist called Froth, yeah. which is a... <laughs> When they wrote it down, they didn't figure that one day some poor actor would have to pronounce that word. <laughs> as long as you're the first one to do it, you just say that's how it's done. Everybody else is wrong if they say it differently now. <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was well read. I liked John Coldshaw. Um, I thought he did a, gave a good reading. Um, he got a good grip on the the vocal mannerisms of the first doctor. Um, and, and yeah, he, I think he was a, a benefit to the story. Um, I, yeah, in a way that I'd felt he was a little hindrance perhaps to, to the fourth doctor one that we had talked about on a previous recording. It's the mastermind of space, which, um, is from the 1969 annual and has the second doctor with Victoria and Jamie. Um, it, it starts off in they're all separately imprisoned in different cells and they're all hooked up to machines that are reading all of their thoughts. Um, after a while, the Doctor does something which enables them to, uh, which makes them realise that he is a unique creature in the universe and so his captors, their captors, reveal themselves and let them go. And... Um, I mean, it's quite a psychedelic story, really. Obviously, mm -hmm. 1969. Sometimes with some of these stories, you do just wonder if um, the writer just sits back with some wacky-backy and sees what comes <laughs> out, you know, but uh, just lets the pen flow. But, um, yeah, there's some nice moments in this story, and it's good that um, 
it's not actually the doctor that resolves the situation this time. It's Victoria. Um, the doctor is described as the greatest scientific mind of any century. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Reminded me of the David Tennant quote, I would call you a genius, but I'm in the room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... The doctor, he thinks of absolutely everything while he's hooked up to this machine. He's coming up with some bestial and inhuman images, which um, I'm not sure that's suitable for a children's book. But <laughs> yes, it's a need... curious description. And then <laughs> Make sure goes... children dash off to look at the dictionary going, oh, what does that mean? And even worse than that, he goes on to maths <laughs> and all of the... Um, geometry and algebra and so forth that he can remember and then he starts making stuff up and then he just thinks about nothing and that's when the uh, creatures decide to release him um and then the three of them are released and the seven shiny objects appear in the uh, distance the mind stuff of the void no less um Victoria is struck by their description of the sort of utopia that they had evolved into having and the sort of, you know, they became beings of pure thought, they transcended all kinds of physicality and feelings and Victoria was horrified by the idea of no emotion, no compassion and no flowers to worship, which is a strange thing. I mean, I like my gardening, but I don't worship the flowers, but... uh, a Victorian flower child. <laughs> yes, a Victorian flower child. But then there are some lovely moments. Um, the moral of the story is never make any being do anything it doesn't want to. And um, at the end of it, um, the Doctor has this wonderful quotation. I think it was a little over my head too, which is such a Troughton line. I love that. You can just imagine him actually saying that. Um, and there's also some very strange things which would probably have made the schoolboys and girls reading the story quite amused. Well, when um, Victoria's trying to demonstrate the idea of love and the idea of man and woman, and so she takes Jamie's hand, and so the, one of the beings says, why are you holding its limb in your limb? <laughs> <laughs> you can just imagine sort of... <laughs> Typically, schoolboys at the age where anything to do with girls is a little bit icky and it's like, <laughs> ooh, if I ever see any of my friends holding hands, that's what I'm going to say to them. But, uh, yeah, it was a nice story. And um, I don't have the annual itself, but I do have a sort of compilation called Adventures in Space and Time, which has got this story in it. And um, there's some nice illustrations of the Doctor in the Machine and so forth. And... Uh, yeah, it's um, I enjoyed it. I th- I think this is this is the one that I felt most embodied a, a sci-fi story in its own right. This didn't necessarily have to be a Doctor Who story. Um, it's nice that it is, and they use the Doctor well. But you're right, he because he's not the the. The, the person around whom the resolution comes. It didn't necessarily have to be a Doctor Who story, and it does fit, I think you're quite right, that late 60s 
utopian sci-fi what's out there why how have things started there's a touch of so 2001 there's a touch of exploring the origins and the mysteries and how and why and what are the what are the potential pitfalls of of, of going too far i did like this i'm not quite sure that what she creates for the entities is going to be a utopia the, the idea that everybody shouldn't stop anyone from doing things they want to is a nice idea, but it's also basically anarchy. Um, <laughs> but but so in some ways, maybe they're going to be doomed to to create the same kind of galaxy that they've already done once. That there's some moral there about it. Um, well, what's that film? They, is it The Purge? When uh, there's like one night when anyone can just do whatever they want. Uh, yeah, it's going to be like that all the time, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, after a year of people who just sort of curl up on the sofa and watch some telly. But it's a different way of looking at it. It did make me think of some of the other um, Troughton stories. I think it captured its era very well. Um, I thought the writer had got quite a good grip on, on the Troughton Doctor and Jamie and Victoria. And it made me wonder whether it was because I I had a quick look, but I couldn't find who the authors of any of these were. But it did make me wonder if, in this instance, it was somebody who had written for the series when Jamie and Victoria were companion, particularly Victoria, because he seemed to have a good. I'm presuming it was a man have a good handle on her character and her likely response to things. Um, so in that respect, I think I think it worked very well um, as, a, as a nice story that gave a, a companion a good chance to to have the spotlight for a little bit. One of the things I liked about it when when the, at the beginning of the story when they, when they're trapped and the doctor's trying to find ways of, of escaping is thinking about the the monitor which um, is displaying what he's thinking about and he thinks about the monitor so then the monitor shows the monitor which shows the monitor and that made me think the Doctor Who title sequence at the time was was created by um, yeah. the, the the camera being filming its own monitor wasn't it? his howl around I think is the effect and that's the uh, uh, and I wondered if that was um, that was a little nod to that um, oh it could be yeah and the other thing made me think, this, this is the 1969 annual, so it must have been written in 1968 because they sort of come out for Christmas 1968. So it would have been before the war games, but it, it has that similar thing because there's a lot of different races have been been captured by these creatures, the, the masters of time and space, um, because they're planning on designing this new universe. So they've, they've uh, picked up a lot of different species and, and, and been scanning their minds as a sort of like Pinterest kind of thing for the, for what the new um, what the new universe is going to be like, uh, which is, is a bit like the war games where people have been taken from time and space and brought together. Um, and even at the end when they're all returned with no memories of, of what's happened, it's um, it similar to what happens with the Time Lords at the end of the war games when they return all soldiers from the different eras. So uh, I thought that was, that was an interesting um, kind of parallel with the similar sort of era as well. Yeah, it put me in mind a little bit of the the crystalline aliens from Twice Upon a Time, 
as they're recording everybody's lives, yeah. um, sort of the, the official sort of note takers of the universe. Um, so there was, there was something of that in, in there for me, for, for quite a modern reference, I thought. Mm, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. That's, uh, that's very true. The idea of always being watched from the outside, it's an interesting one. I did think at the end when they say, well, this new universe, it's not going to be ready for thousands of years. I did think you are in a time machine. If you were, <laughs> if you were particularly mm. curious, uh, you, could, <laughs> you could just go and visit it right now. Um, and yeah, but the TARDIS, of course, didn't work that way in those days, no, did it? True. It just went where it went. So. Yes. And, I, and I did wonder a bit that galaxy and universe, I mean, do get used quite <laughs> interchangeably. Do they mean another galaxy or do they mean a whole new universe outside of our universe, in which case it, it might not be something that uh, could be visited? Yeah, that happened in the series as well, though, didn't it? There's some. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, maybe it's eSpace. Maybe that's what they go off to create. <laughs> and then the pesky giant vampires turn up. Indeed. Uh, that, that's interesting because there's a story later on that's very much like Warrior's Gate as well, isn't that? So uh, mm. maybe they are all connected. Yeah. I, I quite like the idea, though, that the, the masters of time and space, obviously this is before uh, the Time Lords have, um, have come into being or anything like that or uh, have been thought of that they've evolved into beings of pure energy. But there's a nice sort of circular idea that they've realised that now that they've done that, the only way is to go back to the beginning and become corporeal beings again and, and where they've lost all, um, all knowledge of, of what that's like and what, what emotion is and a um, and, and nice circular idea of existence there as well. Yeah, it's a nice counterpoint to the, the Cyberman take on it, where if you mm. take away all the physicality, you become monsters. The, these ones recognise it's a loss and they want to recover it. So, it, although from one point of view, what they're doing is villainous, they aren't really villains or monsters as such. Um, they don't intend to harm people, and yes, they might be causing people and um, creatures stress while they're doing that because the doctor's position implies that people are aware that they're in a captivity, or maybe the doctor just has a higher awareness. Hence his ability to break out of that. Mm -hmm. um, but is what they're doing necessarily evil? I don't think it is. Um, it, it's morally ambiguous, um, but it's not done with any malice, which is another mm. nice change for a story, um, that, uh, that there's something sort of more to think about there. Mm -hmm. is, is what they're doing necessarily the wrong thing? Um, and again, that, that's something that one of the later stories in this audio annual sort of brings up as well. Uh, so, should we talk about the thief of time? Yes, absolutely. Do we have to? <laughs> <laughs> um, thief of time, nineteen seventy-four annual. Um, it's the third Doctor, so John Pertwee and Sarah Jane has obviously new, recently debuted in the TV series. She's the companion now, and it's mentioned in the story. Um, I didn't enjoy this one. Um, it felt really rushed. The Doctor and Sarah Jane are enjoying an afternoon tea in the TARDIS when the Doctor gets a call from Gallifrey from an old friend, Cara, Car. Um, 
in his little strange phone booth <laughs> off the control room. Um, now I read that as this guy being a representative of the Celestial Intervention Agency, still in touch with the Doctor and getting him to do favours for them. And he is informed of a renegade Time Lord, who's not the Master, not the Master at no, all. definitely not the Master. And it's quite nice, because you get a little bit of a backstory on Time Lords, that he is the youngest ever person to be admitted as a Time Lord, and that gives a sense of sort of the Time Lords not necessarily as a species, but as a, a, a position, a hierarchical position within the Gallifreyan society, which I'm not sure has necessarily been suggested before, because we're it's at a time when really three doc, uh, War Games and Three Doctors are the only real mentions we've had of any of Gallifrey's past. And Magidor has been a naughty boy, and he's been abusing the Time Lord's ability to travel in time to accrue personal wealth. And although he was caught and convicted, he has escaped, and now he suddenly popped up again. And the Time Lords would like the Doctor to go and find out what he's doing and to stop him. So there's a, there's a touch of the sort of things they've done before in Terror of the Autons and will do again in Genesis of the Dalek, using the Doctor as their sort of tool. Um, he doesn't seem too bothered about it. Normally he's got a bit of a hump about uh, getting involved with the Gallifreyan politics, um, but he seems really quite happy to do this. And when they eventually meet, there, there is an, there's a very strong suggestion that Machador and the Doctor have a past together. And one of the things I, it made me think a little bit of was Carnival of Monsters, when the Doctor is talking about the... Um, oh, I should have actually written it down because I've forgotten its name. The, the scoop that brings people out so they can be in the, in the little machine for the viewing pleasure. The mini scoop, mm-hmm. yeah. That's the one. And the Doctor talks about having been instrumental in outlawing their use. And it does make me think, at one point they might have been going to sort of suggest that the Doctor at one point had been a, a celestial intervention agency body and had become disaffected and the matter. So perhaps that's how he knows Matador. Um, they meet the Doctor and Sarah travel to to Magidor's planet, um, which I did wonder, is, is the planet a TARDIS in, in its entirety? Um, because there's an implication that it can move about quite easily, hence the, the plastic flowers that Sarah is initially so taken with, and then uh, disappointed that they aren't the real thing. Um, the Doctor and Sarah have a nice cup of tea, um, lots of tea drinking going on in this, although it's John Perthra. I'm not sure he would have preferred a nice Chablis or a, a Shiraz. Um, mm. Drunk inside of TARDIS, though. Not good. That's it. Uh, they get locked in a room, they get out of a room, they run away, and it's all solved. And it just feels like there is so much of this story missing because there isn't a lot more to it than that. But there is suddenly the appearance of um, terrorist droids, terrorist robots, with no explanation, but it's implied in the way it's written that 
yes, you these have been introduced. Um, you should know what they are. It feels like there's a paragraph or two missing that said these come along. Unfortunately, I got a mental image of a sort of malevolent Bill and Ben escorting <laughs> me. Yeah, like terracotta um, mm. robots uh, escorting Sarah and the Doctor. Um, it, it's very disjointed as a story. Um, and was this the uh, John Leeson reading, or is it Jeffrey Beavers? Uh, this one is Terry Malloy. Oh, it is Terry Malloy. Yeah. Um, I thought in general he read it well, but I don't feel he got the character of the John Pertwee Doctor across. I didn't. It was only because I knew it was that Doctor, and I knew it was obviously Sarah Jane that I could place it. It could have been anybody. Um, I don't know. Um, but he, did, to be fair, didn't have a lot to work with from the story. Mm. Um, it, it felt like a real piece of filler that maybe had, was a longer story um, and had got cut down to fill the annual space. That's, that's maybe what I feel about it. And as such, I think it's a really strange piece to have selected for this. Maybe they were, if the annual was tied for word counts, maybe the audio was tied for uh, for audio minutes. Because this feels like I, did, I didn't get anything from it. Surely there are better Pertwee annual stories to, to have put in. Um, so I, I was quite disappointed in this one. It's it's very undercooked, isn't it? I, I completely agree with you. And you, you think if there were if if the word count was an issue, why did they leave in all the stuff at the beginning about the doctor and Sarah having afternoon tea, and uh, all the stuff about uh, <laughs> the stuff about recounting yeah. and sugar and the, yes. and then he offers her a scone. It's like yeah, yeah. the doctor having a popper, like you say about about calorie counting, and then the the stuff about. Um, the, the doctor explaining to her all about time lords and time travel and tardises um which which isn't really necessary we could we could you know we could uh, we could guess that she's she's having afternoon tea in the tardis with the doctor that she knows most of this anyway um but i guess this is again like like i was saying about with the first doctor one reflects what we know at the time um yeah. and the time laws are relatively new at this stage so they yeah, maybe, maybe kind of reinforcing that, but yeah, when, when the Doctor gets to um, to the planet Lunagov Three, um, which, as you say, they um, everything's plastic because and and Madrigal says, "Oh yeah, because I need to move around a lot." Makes you think that the planet moves around. Maybe um, the Doctor yeah, just it's in, like um, the artificial flowers and things that you get in um, in a caravan. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> And the Doctor just intuits that Madrigal intends to invade Gallifrey based on nothing. Um, he just says, oh, well, I guess what your plan is, you're going to invade Gallifrey. Well, up to this point, he's just been um, a thief. He's just, he's just um, travelled, he's used time travel technology to steal things. Um, they say, yeah, because the Time Lords have, in, have invented a time ionizer, And once I've got that, it will allow him to rule all these other civilizations. But we don't find out what the time ionizer does or... Why, if he can travel through time, he can't just use time travel to go back and take over civilizations when they're very young? 
And then the, the way he's defeated, um, having come up with this plan, the doctor just swishes his cloak at him, knocks his gun out of his hand, like you say, runs back to the TARDIS, does something, but we don't know what. <laughs> we don't yeah. find out what he's done. Um, and uh, and it's, it's, it's defeated. And it, it makes you think it's somebody, again, with um, not a very good working knowledge of, of Doctor Who. You might be just kind of reading from some crib notes. The fact, like you say, that there's a... He's got a little room off the console room to, to take private calls. Um, and the way that it takes, like the time, it's like a day to get there. So they, they, it's like it's a rocket ship or something where they go to sleep and they're going to arrive like three o'clock the next afternoon rather than it being fairly instantaneous. It's, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of an odd undercooked story. Um, but the one thing where it is quite forward-looking like you said Lawrence is the idea that everybody on Gallifrey isn't automatically a time lord because that hasn't been broached on the mm -hmm. tv at all up to this stage I think it's not till we get the Shabogans, is it as far as I can remember in the invasion of the time that we, we realize that they're not all time lords on the doctor's home planet yeah but there's a class who, re who rejects that uh, that approach to life yeah, so that that was yeah. interesting that they they extrapolated that and it turned out to be the way that the series went as well yeah, I mean, you know, I always try and take a positive point of view on whatever I'm looking at for Doctor Who, if it's a Dalek annual or a Doctor Who annual or a story whether loved or unloved. I always, but sometimes I just think, is it just me? And, <laughs> and you know, thanks, guys. It wasn't just me this time. This really was. I think I was listening to it on one of my little walks around the block at the end of my working day, and it was like, Oh, this is now. You know what is this? It's, uh, there are better stories out there. Yeah, and I felt I felt it was somebody who was yeah, somebody maybe who was much more grounded in a sort of man from uncle action kind of space story because that's what it feels like. Doctor, your mission should you choose to accept it is to go in the TARDIS with Sarah and stop this. Um, and there's a there's a few little nods to science with the robots and the plastics mm -hmm. and the little sort of the, the magic MacGuffin button that the, the Doctor's been very conveniently working on. It's quite bondvillain to have you here, to invite your heroes in for a cup of tea and, and to yeah. accommodate them and put them in a nice room and stuff as well, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. After explained your plans to them, mm -hmm. yes. Yeah. I mean, if you, if, if you were describing to a writer who didn't know this, you'd say, oh, the Doctor's an alien and the John Pertwee Doctor you're writing about, he's quite, a, quite an action man. I think this is the story you might come up with from that without ever having really seen any of the story to you to get what your character's about. You think, well, this is this is Napoleon Solo in space. I don't know why I've got the man from Uncle on my mind now. <laughs> but yeah, it's those guys, man from Uncle, Mission Impossible, sort of those style stories. It's somebody who I think is much more comfortable with that style of writing than they necessarily are with the sci-fi ones because when it gets to the sci-fi stuff it feels very much there you go you've had your sci-fi now we get back to the cloak swishing <laughs> and running and knocking the guns from hands but i do as i say i do feel that there's a lot missing from that story and i think it's injudicious editing has probably damaged the quality of it um Mm. I hope it's a judicious everything. Anyway, I hope they didn't just go, yep, yeah, that's fine, you can put that in the end. It's, it's just for kids, they won't know. 
when somebody's written something in you know in private eye and at the end it says will this do question yeah. <laughs> and the doctor did something and he went back in time and, and he's in the box there we go <laughs> mm. yes it, it smacked a bit of writer for hire rather mm. than somebody involved with the series Probably completely wrong. It's probably it's probably a Robert Holmes story, or, or Douglas Adam. <laughs> I, I just hope whoever wrote it doesn't regard it as their magnum opus or their magnificent octopus, even. <laughs> yes. Uh, more more of a damp squid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I know, I know it's not, but uh, if you're making the magnificent octopus joke, I can make the damn squid joke. Yeah. It's only natural. Uh, but, uh, so, yes, I, was, I, was, uh, I thought this was definitely the weak link in, in this audio annual. Okay. Not long, though. <laughs> I can say that in its praise. It doesn't go on for long. <laughs> Short and especially sweet. I think the last one of these that we talked about, the Pertwee one, was about the weakest as well. I don't know if they just had a bad run there. But they, I think it was a story called The House That Jack Built, uh, and that was just a really odd story with a, uh, a fairly perfunctory ending as well. If they couldn't use Unit and they couldn't use the Master and they couldn't use the Daleks, then, you know, mm. it didn't leave them a great deal in the Pertwee era, I guess. I, I wonder as well, there's obviously a big change goes on in that Pertwee era of how the BBC views Doctor Who. I think for the Hartnell and Troughton period, although it's very popular and there's a lot of marketing tied into it, a lot of that marketing is based around the Daleks and that's Terry Nation and he mm-hmm. pushes that very strongly and I think mm-hmm. the Doctor Who books and annuals ride on those coattails I think by the early 70s, the BBC recognises it's got a commercial property and not just a TV show on its hands. So I think they take control of things a lot more. And I wonder if this is an annual that is produced primarily by the BBC merchandising department, who may not necessarily be as sympathetic to maintaining at any level of quality or consistency than I think people who were doing it because they were attached to the Doctor Who production team and were asked to pull together something. So I wonder if that potentially would have an impact on things. There's definitely a change. Those early 70s annuals, you start to see photos from the series appearing on it, on the cover, and it's marketed a lot more directly in link to the TV series. I know that sounds maybe sounds a strange thing to suggest because obviously the annual and the TV series are linked, but, but they, it's brought much more together mm-hmm. um, as, as part of a package rather than this is a TV show and there are other things. This is much more a, a merchandising marketing-led venture, I think, and that might then fall lead to you using writers who don't necessarily have that commitment or link uh, mm. to the series, and therefore you end up with a piece of writing which isn't truly reflective of what what a, a fan or committed person might produce. Mm. Mm. 
So the, the next story is the planet of dust, which the uh, audio annual is named for. This is from the 1979 annual, and it's brought vividly to life by Louise Jameson. Uh, the Doctor and Leela answer a distress signal that brings them to an arid desert planet, and where they land, they immediately find the skull of an enormous carnivore. They travel beneath the surface where they meet a living version um, of the creature whose skull they saw, an enormous lizard creature called Beshi, um, who is gigantic. His legs are as wide as motorways, um, if you can imagine such a thing, legs as wide as motorways. Do you know what he calls the bottom of his trousers? The hem one and the hem six. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, go to your... Oh, <laughs> terrible. Oh. <laughs> uh, but for all his size, he's just got a squeaky little voice, which um, which is really fun. Um, Louise Jameson um, portraying that, I think that's uh, she does there's like an effect on it as well. But but she has fun playing this uh, this enormous creature with this tiny little voice, um, and he lives with a lot of little plants, um, which is decided could do with some legs so that they can be more perambulatory. Um, but really, he wants to augment them so that. Um, they uh, they sort of become warm blooded and and fleshy so that he can actually eat them because uh, he can't eat them as plants. Uh, but luckily the plants are secretly telepathic and they tip the doctor off that that uh, this is Beshi's plan all along. Um, so they help the doctor to find the missing part of Beshi's spaceship so that he can fix it and he can leave the planet. Which I thought was nice that he wasn't killed off that he just uh, he just went back uh, went on his own merry way. I, I like this one generally. I think it's a good, really good attempt to create a very alien planet um, and a very different sort of alien. Obviously, not something you could ever achieve on the TV, something that mm. huge. Um, but it's very imaginative. And even the sort of backstory of this very brutal culture that he's come from, where these, uh, his species just fight to the death over anything. And we find out that he killed his co pilot over a woman um, and ate him. Um, and then that these planets, uh, the, sorry, these these plants um they live off dust instead of water um so uh, so that's kind of an alien kind of idea as well and that they they can actually move around to some extent um and that they're telepathic so yeah i thought this was a really interesting story um some cool ideas in it well i mean the giant alien with the squeaky voice was a bit of a hurdle for me to <laughs> overcome i must admit but um i very much liked um Leela in this story I liked uh, you know we get to hear some of her inner monologue and um, you know how she thinks about things and I think her character was quite well represented because um, sometimes the characters are just ciphers aren't they but not in this case it was even if it hadn't been portrayed by Leela by Louise Jameson herself it was definitely definitely Leela you couldn't mistake her for anybody else in this one don't know how many Janus thorns it would have taken to kill him had yeah. they decided to go down that route but yeah it was um it wasn't a life changer none of them no. are <laughs> to be fair but yeah it's it's an interesting idea and I think it's written in such a way that it would have intrigued the readers of the time the target market I I really enjoyed this one I can see why they chose it as the title story for the collection as well um, this, like the Justice of the Galatians, is one that feels in some ways it's, it was so rounded, there was so much in there, that 
But again, I wondered if this was a pitch that had got turned down, as you say, for the practicalities of making it. But somebody saying this would make a good annual story, it, it felt very well thought through. Leela and the Doctor both feel well realised. Um, Beshi and the plants all feel well realised. And I like the moral ambiguity. Again, this is something that goes links back to the, um, the masterminds of time and space, that Beshi isn't really evil. He's, he's true to himself. And yes, he, what he wants to do is monstrous in a way. Um, and he is oppressing it, but he's not doing it out of any malevolence. This is his own survival. He's waited until he's absolutely desperate um, to try and do this. Um, and all he's trying to ensure is his own survival. And he even apologizes um, for, for his behavior. Um, so I, I really like this one. It, it was I felt it was given the scope and space that the writer had, felt that they wrote in a very visual way that was very effective. And I have no trouble at all imagining the dust world and the plants. And I like to have the the image of the plants rather than moving about is that they kind of just popped up, um, maybe shuffled and wobbled a bit like the um, the talking... uh, uh, Aspidistra in the adventure game, the old BBC series. Do you remember? I don't know. You, you're too oh, young, Mark. That's I've your problem. Memories <laughs> of the adventure game. Oh, um, Mark, but you haven't seen it. It's so you, need, you need to have a little look for it on YouTube. Basically, some humans were cap- uh, kidnapped and uh, made to play games by an alien species uh, who can mimic humans, but one of them, who's a grumpy old grandpa, decides he'll be an Aspidistra um, or a Yucca or something. I forget the plan. <laughs> but it has, it has Moira Stewart in before she became known as the newsreader. Oh. Um, and I think and it, for a while... One of those was, that in my mind is um, Janet Fielding was in it once, and um, she sings Waltzing Matilda to the Aspidistra, and that's a memory that stays in close <laughs> to my heart. I don't know why. It was just... <laughs> Such a strange thing to do. But they would sort of pop up and, and appear and, and things like that. So, uh, so yeah, I, I thought it was a really nice story. Um, I thought it was well-written, well-characterised, well-read. And I, I agree with you, Denise. Uh, Leela makes a nice... Um, it's a good story for her, although I did feel that she sort of disappears a little from it once she and the Doctor become separated. Um it, 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 the story follows the Doctor, whereas you could have had some interesting conversations with Leela alone with um, with Belshi and uh, and the other plant. And uh, well, although she can't hear the other plant, can she? Because she's not sufficiently aware enough that the story informs us. But you could have had, could imagine these nice sort of conversations that Leela and this giant alien would have. Um, mm in the Doctor's absence. So, so, yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Yeah, especially with um, with Beshi and Leela both coming from a quite a savage um, sort of society as well, that, that sort of um, survival of the fittest type idea. Um, but, yeah, like you say, the, um, 
he's not an out and out baddie because he doesn't realise the plant's ascension even, does he? Um, no. the, the plants say they normally just uh, pop underground if anyone visits the planet, um, but he's gone underground as well and, and found them all. But yeah, as far it's it's no different to um, farming uh, plants and crops, is it really? Or you know, sort of. Um, are you are you saying the cabbages are talking to us, Mark? Yeah. <laughs> Rad, radishes are ready to revolt. <laughs> Tomatoes are going to turn upon us. This this was Tom Baker's idea to have a talking cabbage as a companion, wasn't it? So um, <laughs> maybe this is the uh, the closest. Well, they got that trick. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was Meglos, of course. That's <laughs> it. I suppose we'd had the crinoids around this time as well, or not long before this, a couple of years before this. Yes. Yeah. But yeah, overall, like I don't have a bad thing to say about this story. I thought it was quite good, and the you shared on Twitter with us the annual picture um, which is quite a striking sort of visual image of uh, um, a blessing and the Doctor sort of going and Leela appearing in the underground suddenly there's this giant thing and the idea they're expecting I think it's this nice contradiction they do and it, it links in with the voice but they expect when when he or she presumably he uh, moves that there's going to be this sort of catastrophic tremors and things like that. And yet, actually, none of that occurs. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed this one very much. Is it my turn with a midsummer's nightmare? Now, that's an interesting story. I mean, it starts off with the Doctor and Romana 2. Um, I assume it's Romana 2. I think it is, isn't it? Um, having a discussion in the TARDIS. The Doctor wants to go for a picnic in the middle of the night, which has Romana a little bit bamboozled, and they have quite a rambling discussion, which takes in everything from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which was actually a play back in 1980-81, wasn't it? And um, then he's also talking about the Shakespeare play A Midsummer Night's Dream, but when he's talking about them being Pyramus and Thisbe, that's actually within the play that... Bottom and the other players want to put on rather than the characters in A Midsummer Night's Dream itself. So that was a bit weird. But then he's like, well, have you ever heard of Norway? Which again is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, Slarty Bart Fast won an award for Norway because of the wonderful crinkly edges. And um, so he wants to go and have a picnic in the midnight sun, which are above the Arctic Circle. Um you can you can see the sun even at midnight. And if you're tired, which you probably are, because if you're up in you go up there on holiday, you know you've been out and about all day. You're a bit tired, but uh, yes, I mean even here in Oslo, it's um, ten past eleven now, and the sky is not yet completely dark because we're getting into summer now. The the, um, the sun goes below the horizon, but the sky doesn't get dark. So uh, you can go for a walk at midnight and still see. And, yeah, it is wonderful. But uh, the doctor gets it a bit wrong, or the TARDIS gets it a bit wrong, because when they turn up, it's pitch dark, which um, our current doctor might want to take note of, since it takes you away. She thought she was up in the north of Norway in November and it was still daylight. No, (laughs) that would not. (laughs) <laughs> the sun disappears in October. You get a few hours of kind of a sort of 
dusky light mid-morning, but then it goes away again. You do not get bright sunshine in the north of Norway that time of year. Um, this story is read by Dan Starkey, who um, is pretty impressive. He does with Tom Baker. Um, his Romana is pretty much firm and to the point, as Romana is. And his Norwegian accent. I don't know if you guys have ever seen that show. I think it's on Discovery Channel or something like that. And it's about the... Um, guys who drive the um, rescue trucks in the Norwegian mountains and on the Norwegian roads and a lorry goes off the road and so they put some chains on its tyres and haul it back on and get it on its way and they're speaking in English to the camera so you're watching a Norwegian speaking English with Norwegian subtitles if you're in Norway (laughs) which is a bit odd but very similar I think he must have learned his Norwegian accent from watching those guys because it was pretty good I thought, and going back to what you were saying about the automatic translation, um, yes, so, um, but Norwegians start to learn English when they're six, so most people do speak reasonably good English. Um, So, yes, the TARDIS has hit some turbulence, that's the reason why it arrives not on schedule, and... um, there's a bit of an orange glow, and the doctor is affected, and he thinks it's the wrath of the gods, which is a strange thing to think. <laughs> um, and so the date of arrival is January 21st, 1981. It would have been pretty chilly. So they're, they're out, and they see an orange glow, and they think it's an industrial thing, but it's not. It's from a cavern, which colours the air, but not your thoughts. Sort of orange and crimson, and there's 12 Norwegians who seem to be in the thrall of this light somehow. And then there's this young lad who they meet, whose name is Sven Larsen, which is a very Norwegian name, of course. And um, he speaks to them in English straight away, or it's Norwegian in translation, I'm not sure. I guess they don't look very Scandinavian. Well, Romana does. Um, and it's interesting how he describes it he talks about what they do not know and the very bad meaning the devil Um, Sven tells them not to be afraid it's his lack of fear of the devil his lack of belief in the devil which has meant that he hasn't been taken over as yet but his family, his parents and siblings are amongst them. So Sven goes into the chamber where this bright light is and gets taken over. And then the 13 people return, capture the doctor. They want him to be the vessel of the energy creature because of his great intelligence, but then they realise that he's too old. (laughs) And then Romana is also a bit too old. Um... So the doctor has to undertake a mental battle with the creature and canine is comes on the scene and brings down the roof and uh, they go out into the dawn. It would have been a very, very faint dawn indeed, if any. And uh, everybody's back to normal and just goes about their day, I guess. So... Uh, <laughs> 
That was the story. Um, there was some nice dialogue. Um, the character of Swen is nicely edgy, and you can sort of believe, you know, he's a young lad, he's scared, he's on his own, his parents have been taken over by this thing, very remote part of Norway, presumably. Um, strange, I mean, I don't know where they get their crazy ideas from, basically. But. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I wanted to like this story more than I do. I think it's well read. I think Dan Starkey does a good job. I think, for me, his Tom Baker really hits and really misses at the same time. One, one line, it feels like, yes, Tom Baker, I'm hearing him. And the next, even though it's a Tom Baker voice, it's wrong. Um, mm. and, and that distanced me a bit. And for quite a while, he gets reduced to just being, going, yes. <laughs> the, the slow Tom Baker, yes. Um, mm. Yes, I, I mean, I, partly the quality of the writing, of course. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, and Tom Baker, I I've just finished watching the key to time sequence and, um, you know, he ad-libs all over the shop, doesn't he? You know, you're pretty sure that most of the time he's not saying the line that was scripted. He's saying something else. So uh, that's Tom's name. Yeah, yeah, that isn't there in in this bit of writing that you maybe needed to really capture the essence of the fourth Doctor. There's no... There were no non sequiturs that really had mm. moments of stress, which are sort of a full stop in defense mechanism, buying himself a bit of time. And you maybe want those, I think, to fully realize mm. that. But that, 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 that's, it's well read. It felt to me that it was a story that had two creators, perhaps, that somebody had written down a list of things. Um, and then passed it on to someone else to flesh it out. And, mm. and I did wonder, because of the um, the hitchhiker's joke at the beginning, I wondered if it actually was Douglas Adams who had sketched it out um, and then passed it on to somebody else to, to flesh out. As mm. Certainly that or somebody, I think, who knew him through his time as the script editor on the series, it felt very much that it was somebody making an in-joke, which is that much of an in-joke to people who know. Um, but it was very all over the place. The, the, the title ends up, I felt, being very sort of crowbarred in, um, because once you've sort of... I made the quick reference to William Shakespeare and that nothing at the end, there's nothing comes back round. Um, mm. And it does seem, as the story goes on, it does seem to sort of fizzle out a bit. And I, was it Douglas Adams or is it Robert Holmes who was sometimes quite bad for doing that? I think Terry Nation did it as well. Some of the Dalek stories he's credited with and sort of the Doctor and X arrives on such a planet, this happens, you write the rest. For uh, some poor very often sort of Terence Dick's script writer to then sort of fill in and complete the rest of the story but not have their name appear on it. Um, so I do wonder if if this was how that one is. It also felt like it had bits of other stories. It put me in mind of things like Stones of Blood, um, mm. things, stories that were going on around that 
that time that had slightly occultish. The Mask of Mandragora I thought of as well. I know it's a bit earlier than that, but the uh, the, the sort of being of glowing energy um, and the, the sort of taking people over in a sort of a cult-like way, yeah. Yeah. So that, um, I think it's very, a story very much of its era. Mm. Um, and as such, I'm sure it would probably have been quite a popular story in the annuals because it was very much like what you were watching on TV. No, I think you're absolutely right as well. It, there's um, to some extent the previous story in this one the, the, there isn't the wit is there that of the, of the fourth doctor um, mm. I think in both stories he comes across as a bit more pompous than than uh, than he is on the screen most of the time um, but yeah the um, the whole thing the midsummer's nightmare it, it doesn't have anything to do with Shakespeare um, there's no point in it being in Norway it could just as easily be in the home counties like like most of the stories are um mm-hmm. i thought it was interesting that um that little sven larsen at one point he's talking about the creature and he says it takes you away which is uh you know um <clears throat> the uh, which makes you think obviously the 13th doctor which is set is 13th doctor story set in norway um it takes you away so that was uh, that was a, an interesting um, although mm. totally coincidental uh, <laughs> little link. Unless that line inspired the other. Uh, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe somebody was doing their research into uh, the times <laughs> that Doctor Who had visited Norway um, and was, was taken with that line, yeah. I thought it was a, a good story. Um, nice, nice to have sort of canine in it again. I quite like the... I did like the little exchange about Shakespeare at the beginning. Mm. I like the doctor sort of suggesting that canine could be the lion uh, and, yeah. K- and canine sort of taking, taking on the bridge at that. Definitely uh, does, yes. Master. Hmm. <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, um, it's like in um, City of Death, you know, the, um, the doctor and Romana, they are culturally literate people and they would talk about these things. So, yeah. you know, that was... I think, yeah, it sort of tailed off after that point, really. You thought the story was going to be about fairies or or aliens or creatures that the locals thought were fairies, though, if uh, if you were going to call a story A Midsummer's Nightmare, wouldn't you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Should have been nice for that. Yeah, for me, definitely one that has more potential than it achieved, but is also redeemed by a good reader. I think mm. I think, yeah. I think if Dan Starkey or hadn't read so well or somebody else had perhaps got it, who wasn't so strong on delineating the characters and creating an atmosphere with their voice, I I would have been less happy having listened to it than I was. Um, uh, the creation of Camelot. Uh, mm. That's our, our next one. Um, fifth Doctor story, we've moved on. Um, and this is from the 1984 annual, written by, not written by, sorry, read by, it's Jeffrey Beavers, it's, mm-hmm. again. I found this a bit of an odd, odd little story. I wanted to like it more than I ended up doing, um, because when I, when you were handing out the stories and saying, uh, so could I introduce this one? I thought, oh, it's Fifth Doctor, I like Fifth Doctor, it's, uh, Arthurian legend, it's got the master in it. Straight away, I, I had a bit of a, 
a king's demon sort of vibe. Mm. I know that's sort of set in the real history. Um, but also it made me think of Robots of Sherwood um, and the idea of the Doctor encountering the mythological people and potentially the real history. Battlefield would be the other obvious uh, connection that draws in sort of futuristic in that, so in that storyline versions of the Arthurian story. And so what we got, I was a little disappointed with. Um, thought it was well written. I think of all the stories that we've had, the writing in this one drew its doctor the most convincingly. Um, I had no trouble at all imagining the doctor in this. And there, there was an obligatory sort of description of um, of King Arthur looking over the Doctor's cricket costume and then saying, so what strange garb. <laughs> but what we get is the Doctor travelling just with Tegan um, and they have arrived in a medieval Dark Ages Britain and there is some discussion before they leave the TARDIS or when they, while they're walking, having left the TARDIS, about the importance of history and what it does. And Tegan suggesting that science is more important in your education than history and the doctor saying, well, science will sort of teach you how to do things. History will teach you how to use the science correctly. And, and it's a bit of that um, sort of if you don't learn the lessons of history, you're doomed to repeat them sort of thing. History helps you gain wisdom. Um, then they arrive at Cat and they, sort of, they are in an Arthurian Britain um, and the Doctor has no sort of real issue with that I, I did wonder if there might be the conflict that you see in Robots of Sherwood um, with the Doctor not believing he's actually meeting Robin Hood because Robin Hood's a myth um, so they're obviously a lot more open to sort of history becoming mythology in the story um the doctor and tegan are then sort of in prison then they're taken to see the king there's a discussion about the merlin um, mm. which i thought was an interesting idea the idea that the that merlin is not an individual merlin is sort of like a rank and a title granted mm. to an advisor thought that was a very nice addition to the whole thing. And the Doctor and Tegan very quickly surmising that the Merlin might actually be the master. Um, no consideration that it might be the Doctor in the future just having a bit of time off, um, slumming it in Arthurian England. <laughs> um, and there's some discussion of how the master might be using his position to corrupt the timelines to, to bring the uh, Saxon invaders, Anglo-Saxon invaders to Britain and how Arthur is a, an important sort of linchpin, a totemic figure within history. And that's obviously something that the Master is, for no discernible reason, wanting to mess about with. <laughs> but he's obviously been there for some time. Um, there's lots of stories about how he's appeared before Mordred um, has been born. Mordred has obviously been born and grow and, and is growing up with his mother Morgana. Although Arthur believes that uh, 
Merlin and uh, the Master as Merlin has sort of seen to his demise. Um, and all it takes is a conversation with the Doctor and Tegan for Arthur to sort of completely vault face on uh, <laughs> on his position. Uh, these guys have come along and said, you're rather bad. Um, now I believe you're bad. The Master is taken off to his room, which, surprise, surprise, is Tardis. And, and he leaves. And then we get a nice little bit about the Doctor asking Arthur if he has a, round, a large round table. It, it was one that felt like it could have had a lot of potential. And then it didn't do anything with it. It's not offensive. It's not badly written. As I say, the character of the Doctor feels well drawn. Uh, Tegan a bit less so, but maybe that was to do with the reading, I think. Um, it didn't... St- but it, maybe the writing, it didn't strike me as Tegan. It's just a character called Tegan. There wasn't the, the force of personality that maybe you were just a Janet Fielding to bring. To the role, and or was wearing trousers, which wasn't really Stephen's thing, but uh, yeah, um, so, he must have been having a day off in the Delta Wake or Mentor or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, it, it was a bit here or there. It was a, it was an idea I felt that had potential, and it just didn't really go anywhere. Um, it's just. The Doctor, Tegan and Arthur having a conversation for most of the thing. Mm. And then it's over. Which, which was a little disappointing. I, I have this annual, but I have to say I have no recollection of this, this story whatsoever. And that's maybe not surprising. Um, I don't think there's anything there to stick in your memory. It doesn't grow the character, it doesn't add an interesting point to the Doctor's timeline. Um, if, if there had been some sort of thing where the Doctor becomes Merlin or, or there's something like that, if, if there's a bit more of the Arthurian world brought into it, perhaps it would have worked. For me, the most interesting thing, and it doesn't relate to Doctor Who, is the idea that Merlin is a position not a person and that to say that's nothing to do with Doctor Who that's just an interesting idea to put into the Arthurian canon yes so in the end Mark you give me two duffers two dumb (laughs) stories not happy I apologise. the the main um, The main reason I work I, I worked it was so that Denise got the one set in Norway. There was a <laughs> yeah, all right. The, there wasn't really any other thought be, behind it beyond that. <laughs> um, no, I, I I think I think you're absolutely right. Um, I felt the same about this. I thought the the moment that I really liked was when King Arthur recognised the word TARDIS. Um, mm. that bit really kind of made my ears prick up and I thought oh, this is going to be really interesting um, but they they immediately assume it's the master um, and they're right like you say it could be a future incarnation of the doctor it could be the meddling monk or Drax or, or anybody um, but I suppose it's a period where uh, they were meeting the, the master with, with some regularity um, yeah. I think you're right about the writing with Tegan's character um, 
when uh, when the doctor says the master's evil and i think king arthur says to, to tegan is this true and she just goes yeah um she doesn't say yes he killed my yeah. aunt he killed my aunt vanessa <laughs> Um, or anything like that and then when the um, when the doctor says oh we're in Britain and she goes oh that tiny island Um, which I mean you could understand it in the concept or in the the context of why does the TARDIS keep landing on the same tiny island on earth and when they've got the whole universe of time and space but she seems to be saying it in a way of like oh I've heard of that place but I know it's just a tiny island not the country she was actually living in when she met the doctor (laughs) yeah Um, Yeah, a more cheeky line line. would have been what again yeah yeah. (laughs) Um, or or, you know are we anywhere near Heathrow yeah you can stop trying to get back to Heathrow now yeah Yeah. (laughs) she's been been desperate to go there for most of the time she's been travelling but now she's like that tiny island I I believe I've heard of it yeah Um, and and I thought it was a little bit muddled um, in the sense that the the master is there to to mess with history but what he's actually done is he's put the correct version of history on track by ensuring Mordred's survival um, he's actually made sure that things play out, although it seems like his his long game is to bring forward the Saxon invasion. Um, it's it's odd that he's actually, um, or you know, according to the version of history that the Doctor knows from Le Mort D'Arthur, is is to say that uh, that Mordred um, is is still alive. And then, but they say the Doctor just spills his guts about everything, doesn't he? He basically tells Arthur how and when he's going to die. He doesn't, yeah. doesn't hold anything back whatsoever. Um, he's very sort of, um, yeah, indiscreet in that way. Um, and yeah, and it's interesting the like battlefield where you say where they um, where Arthur in that one is in a parallel universe, um, and a future Doctor is his Merlin. Um, but then I did think you don't actually know how long the Doctor stays around at the end of this story. Um, it could be that him and he and Tegan stay for quite a while, and he does become. The Merlin, while the while Arthur sets up the Knights of the Round Table and uh, things like that. I don't think Tegan would have let him, to be honest with you. <laughs> she wouldn't have been very impressed hanging around, would she? But uh... probably not. No. Yeah, so it maybe it was maybe a story that had had scope to be something bigger, mm. but was there was too much that idea to 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 be in a little short annual story. Um, I could imagine it being a spin-off novelisation. I don't know if any of the novelizations have, have touched into the Arthurian sort of worlds. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think for, for this, it was just the idea of we'll, we'll have the Doctor meet King Arthur and we'll put it in an annual and want a lot of thought or consideration given to it much more than that's what we'll do. Mm. Uh, so, and again, maybe this is a writer who doesn't normally write for Doctor Who. Although, as I say, they, I felt that the Peter Davidson incarnation was well embodied in the writing and the, and the responses. It was um, definitely his voice, wasn't it? It was yeah. um, that came across very strongly. Yeah, and it wasn't that the that the reading was a particularly Peter Davidson voice that was being given that could sometimes sort of trick you 
into doing that. There was there was very definite fifth doctorisms in the uh, in the way he spoke. Mm. But, yeah, uh, just just quite low key in the end. He he turn up, realize it's the master talking. Arthur is evil. Um, let's say in in the space of a very short conversation, even though the master's been working for him for years at this point. Um, and then he summons him. He admits everything. Uh, leaves and and that's it. Uh, that's it resolved. Yeah, it's, um... yeah. Eighty four would have been the annual for the year that Peter Davidson left the role, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So King King's Demon would have perhaps been around because isn't in King's Demon isn't the Master's Tardis again the room where they, the the Master's Character, his disguised person is staying, or he's just the TARDIS is in that room because it feels. It, it, I just felt all the way through that it was King's Demon with a few of the names changed. And, and mm. just cause to be fair, there's not a lot goes on in King's Demon either, and beyond the idea that you can have the sort of the shape changing robot in the form of Chameleon, mm. um, King's Demon's a pretty thin story as well. I haven't watched that for years, but is is the is his Tardis um, an Iron Maiden in that one, or am I confusing it I with something would, else? I was thinking, that yes, it is. Yeah. Yes, I um, think it might but be. Then I was remembering. There's also the scene where they threatened to put Turlo in it, wasn't there? But um, mm. isn't that the cliffhanger? Whether they actually do put Turlo in, and then he discovers he's inside a Tardis. I'm going to have to watch this again because yeah, yeah. Really yeah. Been a really the only thing long I can time. really remember is the song, and I'm not going to sing it because <laughs> really today. And Walsh was enough, but, but uh, yeah, um, I mean, it's almost like the Doctor is in investigative journalist role there, and he's interviewing the um, creatures from the characters from history, uh, rather than being a protagonist. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, a, a better story than the Thief of Time, but nothing <laughs> to write home about for me. I, th- I think those those are the two sort of low points. Although they they do have something of interest in both of them, and they are both massively short. Uh, <laughs> and they're not up to the standard of uh, planet. Excuse me, a planet of dust or um, justice simulations. Mm. Those those are the two I really liked. Speaking of very slight stories, uh, the this collection is rounded out with Interface from the 1986 annual. Um, this one is brought vividly to life by Terry Malloy, and this is the sole uh, Sixth Doctor story that we've got here, where he and Perry uh, land in a deserted castle. Um, again, it's a mission from the Time Lords, as in the Thief of Time, although they don't find out until they arrive and find a scroll on the table with the the seal of the High Council on it. Um, and, and basically it's just a, some kind of interface between dimensions, uh, so they have to have a bit of a wander around this castle. And then it's, it's very like um, Warrior's Gate, isn't it, where uh, one minute the room's empty and then the next minute there's a sort of a, a party going on and then everyone's killed and they realise that that's where the interface is and the Doctor fixes it with the TARDIS. So it's a bit, there's, there's a bit of atmosphere there, um, but other than that, it's it's an incredibly 
slight story, uh, and I think very heavily influenced by Warriors Gate, as I say. Mm-hmm. Which is no bad thing. No. I mean, uh, Warriors Gate is a thing of beauty on its own, and I always look forward to looking to watching that again. Mm. It's one of my favourites. I was talking to somebody on Twitter recently about the novelisation of it as well because he wasn't quite getting into it. But uh, yeah, it's it the the novelisation as well is something other. So um, if you enjoyed Interface, or even if you didn't, you'll enjoy Warriors Gate yeah. a lot more. <laughs> yeah. I like this. I thought this was the best read of all the stories. Um, and I could really hear Colin Baker's doctor mm. in, in the speaking and yeah. the voice. Um, I liked it, but as you say, it's very slight. It felt like it was lifted out, like it was like it was a we don't have time for this. Let's just chop that whole sequence. Uh, I felt it could have been a part of something bigger, um, rather than reminding me of Warriors Gate, which they mentions it does. It put me in mind of what they would then go on to do with Hellbent uh, um, yeah. and, and the Doctor being caught in, in that repeating loop. Mm. Um, there was some, something of that, um, possibly just simply because it was an abandoned castle and they don't really know why they're there and they figure it out. Um, but it was a nice, a nice little story that I would have actually liked more of. I would have I would have been interested to hear it expanded if there was anything for it to expand into. So, yeah, well. I think if they'd been able to interact with the the, the people who lived in the castle, um, because uh, yeah, I think I think they say it was very well read and it had a really nice creepy atmosphere where you weren't quite sure what was going on. The characters didn't know what was going on. Um, I like the Doctor sort of um, moving the TARDIS around within and without the castle as well um, to, to, to explore it. But yeah, just not a lot to get your teeth into. But like you say, it could have been expanded into something into something a bit more... Substantial. Mm. These these stories, they're, they're standalone, the annuals, they don't tie into anything. It's like there's no... There's no interconnectedness with the actual series. It's very much a side sidetrack. And mm. yet, you know, on a couple of these stories we're talking about, um, like Lawrence mentioned, the idea of it takes you away, said by a Norwegian character in this story, and then so many years later, yeah. <laughs> there's a story set in Norway called It Takes You Away. And again, you know, they're just wondering if there's these tiny little seeds that are maybe one of the writers read these when they were very young and they come through and inspires well I mean it was that Rachel Talale who wrote um, Hellbent wasn't it and uh, she she probably didn't read this to be honest with you but, she, she directed uh, wouldn't it wouldn't it be amazing uh, if she had yeah. she directed it, Stephen Moffat wrote it okay well he would have read he, he would have read it several times yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think that's a lot more common, although there's only one or two of the sort of novelizations and audio stories which actually make an official translation into the main series canon. I am sure that because of the writers they have now who grew up 
like we like we have all done with the classic series and with the books and the novelization there are bound to be little bits and pieces that have gone in and stuck and sort of percolated and fermented and grown and so it wouldn't surprise me at all even if they're not consciously aware of it that these stories do have an influence and we have seen that influence without necessarily being aware of it ourselves mm. um, but yeah I mean these are they're all annual stories they're, they're not in some ways like the novelizations uh, or the the missing years stories or the virgin new adventures things like that um, they were designed for a younger readership and I think that some of them are quite ambitious in, in what they attempt to do for a younger readership um, certainly I would think that as time went on that you had to be a fairly sophisticated reader um, to to get these stories and to, to enjoy them Mm-hmm. Uh, and certainly, as, as I recall, it's been a long time since I had to look at any of them. The older annuals, so they, they probably pre-Pertwee a bit, but those three, they, they were quite long stories, uh, quite complicated. They did try to build worlds. They weren't just, not slapdash, but more like scenes. The... the, mm-hmm. the the creation of Camelot feels like I'm reading a couple of scenes strung together, whereas Planet of Dust, I feel like I'm reading a whole storyline with a beginning, middle, and an end, and, and a satisfying narrative through line to that. I think that is something that maybe disappeared from the annuals as time went on and you got more in the way of pictures, maybe a comic book story, some kind of technical drawing within the annuals. And I don't know if it's simply a case of modern printing processes, but I seem to remember that the the early annuals were fairly chunky, substantial things. And yet by the 80s, they're, they're pretty thin. I mean, that could be improvements in paper quality and things like that. I feel you got a lot more in those older annuals. Mm. And you maybe got better or more rounded stories. Um, you had a lot more comic strips, I think, later ones, once mm-hmm. it got into, rather than an actual long text story, whereas I think I've got the first annual somewhere. I think that's nearly all, you know, proper chunky text stories rather than rather than a comic. But, um, yeah. Definitely the later annuals, they're, they're very thin, even by the standards of other al- albums of the time, I think. Yeah. You know, I, I would get a Doctor Who annual and I would get a Doctor Who, I would maybe get a Blue Peter annual and uh, then there'd be something from a random aunt, which was a Bunty or a Diana or something like that, you know. Which <laughs> same for me, Denise, same for me. <laughs> you, you got a Bunty, did you? Yeah. <laughs> And you never, you never read the comics. It was like an alien world, but you read it anyway because you read everything in those days, even the backs of cereal packets because, you know, <laughs> didn't have yeah. phones in those days. But, uh, yeah, I think it's interesting because I mean, if you look at the stories on these audio discs, just the Hartnell and the Troughton story pretty much fill that first disc. 
Yeah. I think the Thief, Thief of Time is only about four chapters to get through. So that's about 10, 15 minutes to be read out loud. Um, whereas you've got two, fourth, a fifth, and the sixth Doctor's story um, all on the, on the second disc. Yeah. Um, so, so there's definitely a, a, a shrinkage going on. I mean, I'm sure that some of this as well is in the selection. They'll have known they can only get so much on. So not everybody can have a, a pretty long narrative because um, you're just limited by space. Uh, but I thought it was good. I think the three that they that they picked for the longer stories are all good, mm. good, strong stories. As I say, I, I was disappointed with Thief of Time and Creation of Camelot, but there's nothing intrinsically... No, there is something wrong with Thief of Time. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing intrinsically wrong with the creation of Camelot, and I quite liked Interface because probably it was quite different. Mm. I think it was really mm. unlike the stories that were in the rest of that annual. So overall, I'd say, I mean, four out of six, it's a, it's a pretty good uh, rate. Mm. Um, one okay and one not so okay. Yeah. Uh, is it interface is only is only two chapters uh, on the discs as well by the time you get to the end. Yeah, I wonder if there's Yeah, because when when I first listened to it and I noticed that I'd only got two chapters left, I thought you'd you'd dropbox me sort of an incomplete file and I was gonna have to go where and then it suddenly it was all over. Um, and we're getting the uh, getting the credits for the whole thing. I think this is a nice little thing. I think somebody who's not familiar with any of these stories, won't be disappointed if they buy themselves uh, the Planet of Dust. Uh, no, definitely. I did get confused slightly when I was doing a little research. I I forgot the uh, the the in searching for it, and there is a an eighth Doctor adventure called Planet of Dust. Um, oh, right. So I did momentarily confuse myself until I put the the back into the title. Um, <laughs> So, uh, I don't think I've heard that. Yeah. Is that a big finish then, the Eighth Doctor one? I don't it think. is, yeah. It's just an audio adventure. Oh. Um, it's, with one, it's one with the um, the decaying master um, right. in it, the, the, the deadly assassin master. Mm. So, uh, but, but yeah, I like them. I've, I've, I've enjoyed listening to those stories and I, I would have to say that Probably my favourite is Planet of Dust, the Planet of Dust. And I think the most interesting is the Masterminds of Time and Space, mm. simply because I could imagine that working as a, a piece of science fiction writing on its own and very much of its era exploring the nature of existence and humanity and, ex- and sentience. So... Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed those. Thank you for asking me to to be involved again. Thank you for for taking the time to listen to them and, and participate. Um, but no, and, and I agree with you. Um, I, I feel the same about those first two stories. Um, I think there's there's much more to get your teeth into. Um, and mm. and the like you say, the Master of Time and Space one is very much of its time before the Time Lords had been thought of, uh, and we didn't have that set hierarchy of the Time Lords being the most powerful race or one of the most powerful races. This is the Doctor as a lone traveller coming across these incredibly powerful beings that sort of transcend even just the one universe that 
that the Doctor normally um, inhabits. Um, it, it opens things up to a massive degree, doesn't it? That there's these creatures who are creating either new galaxies or universes. But uh, yeah, it was it was a that that potentially is my favourite one as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's got the. Um the greatest depths, and perhaps mm. it would have been the most inspirational for the readers at the time. Came with its own free tab of acid with every annual. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just had to lick the right page. <laughs> it's yes, lick, lick the doctor's face before reading this story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's never ever do that. Mm. <laughs> Well, thanks again, and and thank you very much for listening at home. Um, I will uh, put in the show notes where we can find you both on Twitter, and um, we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Yes. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Bye.